Today's message is entitled, Fatherhood with No Condemnation, or How Our Father Changes Our Affections. We're going to be going through Romans 8, but we're going to really camp out on verse 1 because it's just so good, and it changes everything. So let's pray. Father, we pray that you would convict us of sin and righteousness and mercy. We pray that you would help us to see that your face is turned towards us and that you would change our affections to you. And now, Lord, you know all the spiritual warfare that um, we here in this room are experiencing now and how much I experienced in the days preparing this message. And I pray that you would protect us from the evil one, guard our hearts and our minds in your son, Christ Jesus. We pray against every distracting spirit, every distressing thought, Lord, we pray that you would, um, you would be like, like the Holy Spirit who hovered over the waters when they were dark, disorganized, and turbulent in creation, and that you would gently hover over us and settle upon us and bring, bring your peace and your presence. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Today I'll be referencing uh, notes and articles in the Reformation Study Bible in talks by a preacher named Bob Mumford. Um, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Or pull it up on your smartphone as desired. We're going to look at how God takes repeat offender sinners and does not condemn us and all that means. He put my sin on his son then I was buried with Christ in baptism and raised up to a new life. What I find in this new life, as I often struggle with sin, is that there's someone here with me. The Holy Spirit helps me in my weakness. And when I look up, I see where all this came from. God is now my father. And Jesus, my older brother, is standing at my father's right hand intervening for me. The gospel is not, you're a sinner, God can forgive your sin, so you won't go to hell, you'll go to heaven. The gospel starts with loss. We've lost our father. And in the gospel, the father turns his face towards me, and I turn my face toward him, and our gazes meet. And all of a sudden, I have something to live for like I never did before. It's a change of affection. He is good to me. Amen? Amen. And my heart warms to him. And I begin to delight in him more than in sin. Especially with the baptism in the Holy Spirit, my affections really warmed up toward God. And that change of affection is what changes my behavior, empowered and anointed by the Holy Spirit of promise. That's the gospel. It starts with finding our Father. We're about to read Romans 8 together again, but our first passage is Romans 5, 1 through 11, which is like a mini version of the larger chapter 8. Since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Amen? Amen. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation. That's not a theology word. That's a family word. We've been reconciled to our Father. Now let's take a brief interlude to talk about holiness. Because it says... Without holiness, no one will see the Lord in Hebrews. Uh-oh. First Peter chapter 1 says, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. What's the problem with that? We're unholy. But in the Bible, God calls us saints, which means holy people or my holy people. Since holiness is not found in ourselves, remember all of the messages we've cited, Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Raise your right hand and say with me, nothing lies like my heart lies. Nothing lies like my heart lies. Amen? If you're a Bible-believing Christian, even though you usually feel like a pretty good person, you may have faith to trust in that scripture. Since holiness is not found in ourselves, holiness is not found in ourselves. We must be made holy. We are made holy by someone else. There are two kinds of holiness in the Bible. Identity and lifestyle. Identity is not something, listen fellow millennials, identity is not something you make and post for the world to see so that everybody can see who you are. That is not the biblical way. Our thinking must be undone. Identity is something God 
speaks over you. When God speaks, every word of God is pure, true, and law. Not one of them fails to accomplish the purpose for which he spoke it, nor will any word of God's ever pass away. When God speaks over you a new identity, when God gives you a new name, when God calls you by the name of his son, when he writes Christian, Christ's, little mini Christ on your forehead, and he puts his spirit in you so that even the things you do look like the things Christ do. That's what it means in Revelation. When you put your hand to, to the plow, when you put your hand to do something, that's like your right hand, the hand that works, that does stuff. His name is written on your hand. And when other people see the things Christian do, Christians do despite our amazing fallenness and propensity toward, to, toward sin daily, somehow, by the power of God which overcomes our flesh, other people see the fingerprints of God even in the things we do and even in our relationships. Thank God. Two types of holiness in the Bible, identity and lifestyle. Identity is something God gives us. Lifestyle is what we do with God's help. This is our new identity. That we are not our own but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is your identity. You belong to God in a relational, familial sense, not as an object that is possessed. He is your Father, and He is unlike and far better than any earthly father has ever been. He is holy, he shares his holiness with you, and that's your new identity. You are a holy child of God. It doesn't matter what your spouse says, it doesn't matter what your dad told you, it doesn't matter what your coworkers say about you, it doesn't even matter that there are a lot of people who don't maybe like me, God's words will never pass away. Amen? Amen? And he who has declared the end from the beginning and set the boundaries of the world so that nothing that he hasn't called forth shall ever be moved beyond the boundaries appointed for it. So he has spoken over you. You are my son. You are my daughter. My treasured possession in all the earth. These words will never pass away. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As he breathed life into Adam's lungs and he became a living being in the garden, just like that, God breathed the Holy Spirit into you and you became alive toward God. You became a son or daughter of God, so that means you're part of a new family. Every kid ask their parents the question when they hear about terms like niece and cousin and aunt and uncle. They say, okay, so if Uncle Jack is, my, uh, is your brother, then Lila is my cousin niece? And then you've got to explain the family relationships. When you become a son or a daughter of God, you're part of a new family. And if you're a son or daughter of God and a brother of Christ, that means you have a new father, an eternal father. 
we have a holy identity and we're part of a holy people called by God's name. Two kinds of holiness, identity and lifestyle. Lifestyle is the process of the Holy Spirit helping you to put off the old and put on the new. The Holy Spirit lives in us for fellowship. And his work is to draw us closer to our Father and closer to one another. His will is that we should be sanctified. Can anyone resist his will? He works in you to bring about a more righteous life and heart. He puts the law of God in your heart so that you are heartily ready to live from now on for him, putting off the old you and putting on Christ. This is a difficult process. It is the call of God on every Christian man, woman, and child to walk that narrow path on either side of which lie many dangers, toils, and snares. It is promised to us that we will have suffering. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. The result of all our suffering is that God is good. He will not waste one drop of your suffering. He will redeem it all and use it for your good to build you up into the image and likeness of Christ and for the glory of God. Soon, we will be finally, fully, and forevermore righteous. Since this is our hope, we toil and strive for the holiness to which we were called, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within us. Amen. Let's turn to Romans 8, if you're not there already. I'm not there. Romans chapter 8. You know, God, Satan doesn't want you to hear this sermon today. Don't let anything distract you. Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Psalm 103.10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means precisely two things. One, I am fully received as uh, endorsed, justified, full-fledged member of the family, child of God. There's, there's nothing that keeps me away from God now. There is no condemnation. I am his and I am united with him. At the same time, and this is contained within this verse, God dislikes, even hates sin, even my sin. If you can hold those two truths in tension without letting go of either one, you will have grasped something that most Christians don't get to very well and that all of us struggle with on a daily basis. God receives you completely without qualifications. There is no condemnation. There is no judgment. There is no punishment. Right? Simultaneously, 
God hates sin. I hate sin sometimes, right? Amen? God hates sin perfectly and deeply. And God loves me perfectly and deeply. We must hold these two truths in tension. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but my heart wants to sin every day. My heart likes to sin, Jeremiah 17, right? All of us have sinned. There's no one righteous, not even one. The wages of sin is death. Here's what it is. I want to sin. I don't want to sin. I want to sin. Who will save me from this flesh, this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, who has substituted his immortal life for my sin-enslaved life. Effectively, that means powerfully and sufficiently, bringing me into the eternal kingdom of the Son of God. There is now no condemnation for we who are in Christ Jesus. I want that. I want God to not condemn me. Amen? Amen. I want there to be no condemnation for me. But the problem comes when I want God to treat me this way, but I don't want to treat you this way. Don't you see the problem with that? When I come here to worship God and say, thank you for your love and forgiveness, but then I turn around and I treat you as I think your sins deserve. Oh, oh, you treated me that way? Fine. Fine, I hate you. Brothers and sisters, that wasn't Christ talking through me, was it? That was me being led by my flesh. And my heart always wants to take me there. Can I get an amen? Amen. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Nothing lies like my heart lies. My flesh always likes my sinning. Right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have to hold these facts, these truths, at the same time and not let go of either one of them. And the gospel of Jesus Christ enlightens our minds to understand these things and to receive the acceptance of God and to receive as a gift from God a love for his law and a hatred for our sin, which needs to be renewed every day. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, me or you. And I need my mind and my heart to be washed by the word of God at least every day. Or the gravity of my depravity will bring me down. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God laid all the punishment for my sin on his own son. So there's simply no more punishment remaining. I don't have to be afraid of being punished by God because fear has to do with punishment. God does not dislike me. God does not hate me. God is not angry at me. His son was already condemned. There's no longer any condemnation left. I'm not under the curse of the law any longer. Neither am I enslaved to my own sinful heart, passions, and desires anymore. I am empowered with the, by the Holy Spirit to say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. 
contain in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, are, are things like justification, that I am made perfectly righteous by the blood of Christ. It would be foolish of me to agree with the whispering thoughts in my ear or the accusations of the enemy that arise from within and without and agree with that and be self-deprecating. But we struggle with that. Therefore, we need to be renewed in these gospel truths which must be empowered by the Holy Spirit to change our heart every day. Justification, freedom from condemnation. Out in the world, when somebody tells you that you're wrong, instead of hearing that as loving, I sometimes hear, you're worthless, you're a failure. But you are of inestimable worth. In exchanging the life of his son for your life, our father is saying, you are more valuable than anything I created. Indeed, I am giving you the spirit of adoption. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, that means the operative power of the Holy Spirit, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That means the power of sin in me. By sending his, for what God, for God has done, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What does that mean? God's law is good because he's spoken. God is good. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's nothing wrong with God's law, but God's law, except from the empowerment of his spirit, which breathes life into our mortal bodies, apart from the empowerment of God, the laws of God don't have the ability to make me a righteous man, or want to be a righteous man, or wish I wanted to be a righteous man. In fact, what I get when I read, if I could read God's commandments, apart from the aid and loving care and fatherly empowerment of the, of the Holy Spirit, I, I would be crushed under a weight of a curse of not being measure up being able to measure up to God's perfect law. His standards are way higher than anything that could come out of my heart. In fact, I know that there's nothing good that dwells in me. That's what I get when I read the law of God. But weakened by my flesh, the law could not convert me. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, that's in his flesh, in his body, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, this is who we used to be. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's something we actively must do and participate in every day. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, since the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. When Jesus touched a leper, he didn't get dirty, the leper became clean. When the Spirit of God comes to live in you, it becomes your destiny to be sanctified, and there's nothing you can do about it. The affections of God, the affection, the kindness, the love of God is unstoppable. God loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. His love is irresistible because of the power of who he is. but I still have this flesh. I still want to sin a lot. So then, brothers, we are debtors. We owe God. We owe him a great debt. We are debtors, but not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Okay, raise your hand if you were born between 1983 and whenever it stopped, stopped being a millennial. Raise your hand if you're a millennial. I don't remember the last year. All right, okay, all right. So most of us have made the cutoff, right? There is this doctrine in our thinking, in, a, uh, in American thinking, that, who, that my urges and my passions arise out of something godlike in me. I'm a law to myself, and if I don't act on my urges, I cease being who I am. And part of being a millennial, the bad part of it, because there's a good part of it, part of being a millennial is being all about me. Right? And God is in this room to undo that day by day. And he will succeed. Amen. Amen. I do not owe it to myself to open that web page. I do not owe it my, to myself to be right and to say in anger to my wife that thing that's on the tip of my tongue. It's almost like I was inspired to say that, that comeback. Oh, no, I wasn't, or was I? Sometimes temptations don't come from within you. They come from outside of you. You don't have to feel guilty for everything that pops into your mind. And you don't owe it to yourself to say it no matter how right you are. I need an amen from every married person. <laughs> and every parent. And everybody who's ever had a housemate. <laughs> For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death... Okay, who... Um, uh, Leah, what's the name of the, the knight on the horse with the spear and the snake, the dragon? St. George. George. Okay, I like St. George. Um, I wish I could remember his name. He's a, he's a, uh, he's a f figure in 
history and legend, he's a figure of history and legend, right? And if you find an image of St. George in one of those beautiful stained glass windows in some church somewhere, you might see him on horseback with a big long lance with his spear, and he'll be skewering a snake or a dragon that is on the ground, perhaps crushing its head. It's an image of Christ, and it's an image of us in Christ. So this might resonate more with men than with women. I don't know. Not all violence is inherently sinful. Amen. Leah, what's that they say? Love is, love is most violent to save. Jesus' love inspired him to crush the serpent's head. That's gross. If you've ever stepped on a mouse or a cockroach or a snake, like there's a death there and it crackles and squishes and it's gross. Okay? All right. So this, this might resonate more with men. Yeah. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh of the body, you will live. I actually imagine myself spearing that flesh, that sin that's rising up in, in me like the head of an ugly snake. And, and I experienced this kind of relief whenever I crush temptation under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that is what the Holy Spirit has called, how the Holy Spirit has called you to war every day. And often, what needs to be crushed is my thoughts that would condemn my fellow man. My wife, my child, my church member, my pastor. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. I forgot to say Often the thoughts that need to be crushed are self-accusing thoughts, self-deprecating thoughts, thoughts that say, I don't belong here, or I'm not welcome here, or there's something wrong with me. Go back to those two truths we must hold in tension. God does hate my sin, yes. God does love me, yes. You have to hold on to both of them and not let go or loosen your grip on either. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Dad, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So what's happening here in this passage? I want you to see that what's happening in this chapter is not only theological or doctrinal, but relational. First, first, he turns his face toward me. Jesus gives himself in my place, and now there's no condemnation coming down on me. There's nothing hanging over my head. Instead, it goes right past me and comes down on him. I actually think about this whenever I want to say something mean to a family member. I'm like, wait a second. God's not condemning that person. Jesus was condemned, even if they are in the wrong, Jesus was already condemned for that wrong. Someone already died for that sin. So who am I to condemn? Who's going to condemn my wife who's been liberated from the law of sin and from condemnation, even righteous condemnation? It's already taken care of. Instead, that condemnation goes right past me and comes down on him. 
then I turn my face to my Father. And I see all that all this that Jesus did for me was for one purpose. He's showing me the Father. He has lifted off my burden of sin and guilt and shame and fear. There's nothing left to fear. God sees me down to the deepest secret. And he gladly receives me. This happens in my prayer life on a routine basis, powerfully, and it should in yours too. This is the daily gospel process we go through. He wants to be my father. That's what's happening here in Romans 8. But it would be unmerciful, unloving, even unpowerful to receive me without changing me. Amen? There at the start of my new life in Christ is justification. But without building upon the foundation of justification with sanctification and finally glorification, I would be nothing but an unfinished project. I have lots of those on my workbench. Right here, in the middle of our, and and they'll never amount to much because I'll never get to them. I don't want to be like that, do you? Right here, in the middle of our Christian lives, we are partially sanctified with certain hope of being caught up into the glorious, eternal fellowship of our Father and the communion of all the saints. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Raise your hand if you thought, things were just going to be gravy in the Christian life. Now, everybody who's read Pilgrim's Progress, raise your hand. You should read Pilgrim's Progress. It'll give you a realistic expectation for what you will encounter in the Christian life. It will be hard. Praise the Lord. God is perfect. There is no fault in him. He's never done anything wrong. He saw everything that could be before anything was, And in his thoughts were contained all the right thoughts that could be thought in one eternal instant, we might say, prior to creation. But he is unchanging. Therefore, this is the best of all possible worlds. This is a hard one. Well, it's certainly been a hard one for me because sometimes I am suffering. And sometimes I watch you suffer. And... Often did I think in my earlier Christian years, God, couldn't you have done it? I just think there was a better way. Oh, no, there was not. And that takes some empowerment of the Holy Spirit to perceive the goodness of God, even though I am suffering. Even though I've been mistreated. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation, ourselves included, has been groaning together as in the pains of childbirth. If you uh, have worked as an obstetrics nurse, or if you, you know, uh, are a lady who is a mother, or if you've been the husband of a lady who is a mother, um, you know something of, in the hospital when they ask you, what's your pain level? What's the gold standard for the definition of 10 out of 10 pain? A lot of people say, well, that's childbirth. So people have been through it say, that's the worst there could be, right? Or at least it's a 10 out of 10, maybe there's an 11. The pains of childbirth, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, amen, amen. as we wait eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Do you think he means it? Do you think he's passionate about saving you and delivering you from this body of death? Oh, yes, he is. There are no words for it. The Spirit intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. Does that process ever stop one day when there's no more need for him to intercede for us? This passage is Trinitarian, the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father. The Father knowing the mind of the Spirit, the Spirit interceding for us in accordance with God's will. And in verse 34, I think we're about to see that Jesus is also standing at the right hand of the Father praying for us. There's perfect unity here among the, the Godhood. Godhead is an old-fashioned way to say Godhood. You might say Godness. So when we say the Godhead or the Godhood, we're saying he who is three in one. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, for those who are called by his name, who have been given a new identity. For those who are called according to his purpose, brothers and sisters, God is doing something here. He has not forgotten you, no matter what you're going through. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In the eternal mind of God, who is outside and above time, you are already glorified. There's such a thing as time, yes, and we are in it, yes. But that is no obstacle or object to God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What about my screw-ups? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That is the eternal inheritance of the saints in Christ Jesus. For God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All the earth is mine, declares the Lord. And if we are sons and daughters of him, then what lack is there in his presence? Surely he will give us all of himself. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. It's not like some really good guy said, I'll take, I'll take John's sins, and then was convicted or whatever in the trial against me, and I was set free, and then later somebody's like, well, what about this sin? Or his death wasn't enough. Like, your sins are worse than his sins were. He can't substitute for you. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Who is to condemn? More than that, Christ Jesus is the one who was raised to life, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, shall trials, shall tribulation, shall persecution, shall distress, shall famine, shall nakedness, shall shame, shall embarrassment, shall danger, shall sword, shall the government... Shall failure, shall governments that rise and fall and sometimes persecute and condemn Christians, shall church splits separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Shall my failures as a parent? It is as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're going through it, Lord. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Oh God, oh God, thank you that you have spoken these eternal and powerful words over us. I was going through it and I was beginning to wonder if you were still with me. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, no angel, no demon, no thing present, nor thing to come, no power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The affection, the warmth, the reception, the love of God for you is unstoppable. Satan cannot, he has no power against it. God can give Satan permission to trouble you. God can lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. He is with you. Amen. Let's have the communion ministers come forward, please. There is now no condemnation here for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is so much more than no condemnation. We have found our Father. Please come forward. And I testify to you today that there is nothing better in life than the fatherhood of God. Amen.